This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia? Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? We're finally going to talk about fertility. But first, what's another thing we do for no reason? How about stress dose steroids? All right. This is a good one. And this actually did come up with my program recently. We were discussing about how to take care of an OB patient who's on long-term steroids. So credits to Dr. Wade for bringing this one up. So yeah, so stress dose steroids is when a patient is going in for surgery or delivery and they're already taking steroids for some chronic disease, maybe like asthma or autoimmune disease usually, or maybe even for immune suppression due to an organ transplantation. And the dogma has been to give these patients additional steroids while they're before and after their delivery or their surgery to avoid some kind of adrenal crisis like hypotension and shock. And so that's what's called stress dose steroids. Yeah. So yeah, the idea is that the glucocorticoids that they're already taking will lead to feedback inhibition of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and therefore suppression of that axis and that therefore they'd be unable to produce more of their own cortisol in response to the physiologic stress of the surgery or the delivery or whatever's going on, which would then lead to an adrenal crisis causing hypotension and shock and all the bad things. This history of this is largely based upon a case report in 1952 of a patient who died after a routine orthopedic surgery, and they had been using long-term corticosteroids, or she'd gone into shock, and the cause of death was determined to be due to adrenal insufficiency. There were also reports of adrenal atrophy in patients on long-term steroids and at autopsy, and this led to the idea of using so-called stress-dose steroids to add additional glucocorticoids that the body wouldn't be making or couldn't make on its own due to the long-term suppression of the axis from this long-term exogenous steroid use. So you're saying this is another example of something we started doing because... It seemed to make sense and not necessarily based on any rigorous, high-quality evidence. I know that's shocking that we would start doing something in everyday medical practice without good scientific evidence. But yeah, we do that a lot in medicine, right? But human biology is complex enough that things that just kind of intuitively make sense to us often don't actually work. There's a lot of things that that we do that started out because you just thought about it and it made sense. And then you do it, you do the studies, and in the end, it doesn't pan out. But once we start doing things like that, that just make sense, it's really hard for those practices to kind of go away and leave our everyday practice. The idea of stress dose steroids is almost 70 years old now, but we've had pretty good data for at least 20 years or so that says it's unnecessary or largely unnecessary. And not only that it might be unnecessary, but that it could actually be harmful because those additional steroids that you're giving, they have their own metabolic and infectious complications and things like that associated with use of those steroids. There could be some extreme cases where stress dose steroids might be prudent. So if the patient has Addison's disease, that's a primary adrenal insufficiency. You're replacing steroids there to begin with because they're not capable of making them. Or maybe they've had bilateral adrenalinectomies due to a tumor or something like that, or they're suppressing adrenal hyperplasia. So if it's a case where the patient really actually can't make 
steroids on their own, that's probably a different matter. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about people who don't have a primary adrenal insufficiency of some sort or a secondary adrenal insufficiency. They just are taking exogenous steroids. I think that the topics like this are interesting because just thinking about the way medical education occurs, we talked about LDH in the last episode. Why do any of us order LDH for preeclampsia or something like that? Because when we were a student or a resident, someone told us to do it and they did it all the time. And students today, they really, they learn a lot more through what I call non-contextual learning. It's not my term, it's a pedagogic term, but what I mean by that is they learn from review books and apps. They learn from question banks. They learn from condensed notes in the form of a review book or online notes or something like that or lecture sets. So they use this condensed information because they want to they want to get to the answer. They just want to know what they need to memorize. So they want to know the answer to the question, but they often don't remember or maybe even learn in the first place how we came to that answer or why we started doing something or why the answer is the answer. So they learn the answer, but not the how or the why or the process. This makes them less flexible to change in the future because they're not learning how to think. And it also makes them less capable of, frankly, detecting sort of BS stuff that at the smell test doesn't make sense. Contextual learning would involve learning about a topic in much more detail and not just learning the takeaway points or the conclusions or the bottom line. This would involve reading a textbook, which honestly fewer and fewer students do these days, and learning the background and the principles that go into the decision-making calculus about something. So the real thing they're learning is how to make the decision and why the decision was made. Now, in this case, if you read about stress dose steroids in a contextual manner, if you read any textbook or anything like that, you would learn that there's never really been good literature developed regarding the need or importance of these steroids and that the optimal dose or route of administration has never been truly established and that the subject has at least been very controversial over many decades. And now that the majority of studies in recent years have shown either that they're explicitly unnecessary or even that they cause harm. But the non-contextual learning happens when the resident or the student is just told, hey, give stress dose steroids to anybody who's already taking chronic glucocorticoids and they come in. Or maybe they're just triggered to do so because of something they were pimped on. They saw somebody else doing previously. And I've seen this. And then you you, you tell them the dose that you want. And then they just kind of write it down in their little handbook or put a note on their phone so that next time somebody comes in on steroids, they can remember it. And then it just becomes dogma over time. It just becomes the thing we do without understanding why we do the thing or what its importance might be. And dogma is something we should avoid. Yeah, I'm not very far removed from this whole non-contextual learning process. I remember being a little bit turned off from the big, wonderful textbooks because by the time they come out, all of their references are already at least five years old, a little bit out of date. But I do agree that you can get a lot more of the background and history, I think, and get a more complete view if you also can incorporate some textbook learning into everything else. But I definitely did a ton of this rapid shortcut style learning during my training. We always had this little resident survival handbook type of thing for every rotation. It would have all the order sets and the different staff preferences for what what kind of meds they want to use. And so I'd be flipping back and forth between that and then my condensed little exam review notes. And really, a lot of times, the only way to stay above water, especially in earlier training, is just to try to memorize the management for like the key conditions. Just rattle off quickly, how do you how do you admit someone in preterm labor or with preterm rupture of membranes? 
what do you order for eclampsia or pelvic inflammatory disease? Or how does the oncologist like their electrolyte replacement and their post-op patients and all that kind of stuff. But those little cliff notes and study guides really can't get into the background and the evidence and the rationale for those decisions because then it it wouldn't be a hand a little handbook it would be a massive textbook <laughs> you can't just carry that around and find what you're looking for quickly in that and so in some cases once you actually start looking into why and try to explain why you're doing something you might get shocked that there isn't necessarily firm footing for why you're doing something. It, and especially after you've learned how to do it, you've done it so well for several years, now you're teaching the the young trainees how you did it and feel super confident in the management and realize it's just kind of built on this really thin, vague kind of tradition. Or a 1952 case report. Yes. And I also, on this topic, remember getting frustrated once in residency because I was trying to look up stress dose steroids dosing for a patient that didn't have primary adrenal insufficiency. And I couldn't find the gold standard protocol anywhere. And I just thought, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? I just need to know the dose. And I didn't really stop to think at that point, maybe there's a good reason why there is not a gold standard protocol that I can find. Yeah, definitely. That's what happens. It's just the nature of how we learn. But getting by initially with crib sheets or cheat sheets or things like that is not a replacement ultimately for learning. And unfortunately, though, in in the way life goes, you can get away with it. Like if you learn the right way and you do the right thing for the patient, it may not look different to those observing you than if you just copied it down from your cheat sheet. So we have to emphasize a different type of learning to to encourage people to actually understand what they're doing and not keep making mistakes. That's one of the things I've been fascinated with is why it takes so long, an average of 20 years almost, for an evidence-based practice to become commonplace. And this is kind of the reason why. I think it's more important for people to learn the why than the actual what. And the kind of examples you just gave, the treatments that you might have on your crib sheet for those diagnoses, they take on a kind of permanence in our minds when we just do them over and over again and have them written down. It feels nice to have something solid and substantial. And we become confident in our ability to manage these diagnoses because we can produce those confident and substantial, those things. We can do this. I can do it. I can take care of this patient. We always do this when we see that. If the patient comes in with X, we do Y. And I think that bullet point reviews and pocket guides and things like that, that people tend to learn from, or maybe internet websites, those sorts of things, it just encourages that sort of learning. So just to circle back then, there is no evidence that or guidelines that we should be doing stress dose steroids, but are there actual guidelines that say we should not be doing them. I'll put a link to a Cochrane review and a link to another detailed discussion in general surgery is some of this literature if people want to read more about it. The Cochrane review summarizes really that there's just insufficient evidence to recommend using them. And as we've discussed before, if there's insufficient scientific evidence to do something, then we shouldn't be doing it. And I do think that's an interesting thing. That's what happens a lot of times is we do something with no evidence. And then people say, is there harm though? I mean, are we hurting anything by doing it? And that's the story of DES. And that's the story of a lot of things that we do. So unless there is explicit scientific information that says something is beneficial, don't do it. I I don't know. I don't know how to make that more simple, but we have a lot of things like that have persisted because people are like, but it's not hurting anything, is it? So there's no evidence that they're beneficial and there is evidence of harm in terms of infectious and 
metabolic derangements associated with their use. That really is the definition of a thing we do for no reason. So let's move on and finally get to talking about fertility. Let's do it. Yay. Okay. Before we actually get into fertility treatments and things like that, I thought we should just talk about ways of optimizing or boosting natural fertility. That's the first thing people want to know when they are first thinking about getting pregnant. And it's common that we give advice to people who are seeking to conceive who don't necessarily meet the definition of infertility yet. And they may just be looking for counseling about ways to maximize their chances without necessarily needing a infertility drug. Or maybe they probably do need some drugs, but they can't afford the treatment. So they're trying to look for a natural way. And a lot of patients will also look online for tips and tricks, I think, that really can just be a total landmine of misinformation and gimmicky products and stuff. So there's a consumer article on healthline.com called 16 Natural Ways to Boost Fertility. So this is just one example. There's millions of articles like this. So this article presents itself as evidence-based. It's written by a PhD. So I'll just quickly read these 16 things that they list, and then you can laugh at it if you want. So here goes. Eat foods rich in antioxidants. Eat a bigger breakfast. Avoid trans fats. Cut down on carbs if you have PCOS. Eat fewer refined carbs. Eat more fiber. Swap protein sources. Choose high-fat dairy. Add in a multivitamin. Get active, but take time to relax. Cut the caffeine. Aim for a healthy weight. Check those iron levels. Avoid excessive alcohol. And finally, use natural supplements like maca, bee pollen, bee propolis, I think, and royal jelly. So I'll let you laugh it out now. I don't need to laugh, but you know, I don't even know what to say, honestly. A lot of advice about all sorts of health topics are of that form. And a lot of advice that clinicians give to patients are honestly of that form too. Just nothing in there sounds crazy and all that. But you know, is any of that actually going to help you get pregnant or, or are we just wasting time? And what myths and sort of narrative fallacies are we creating? This is what frustrates all of us, I think, about the sort of stuff you find online, even coming from legitimate sources or written by people with advanced degrees. I, at the top of that article, I love that they have a check mark next to the word evidence-based, mm -hmm. just so the reader knows that it's scientific. But I guess I would say that the author of the article maybe doesn't understand what science is. The type of science that she offers for many of those items that you just listed, is honestly the same sort of science that proves that vaccines cause autism. It's this sort of, maybe this does that, and if that did this, then it could have that impact. But it doesn't actually show that it has that impact. If you can imagine the conspiracy theorist who has pictures on his wall with strings drawn between different pictures of people and stuff, linking this to that and that to this thing and all this together. And this is how she's sort of, this is how we construct these webs of deceit, this complicated kind of reasoning that ultimately is not science. But since you brought it up, I would just say that 
the way that we would know that any of those things you just listed would be scientifically linked to better fertility would be to have a placebo-controlled or sham-controlled interventional trial that showed that when a person did this, they had improved live birth rates or improved conception at least. And I don't think she cites a single such study with any of those. Now, don't get me wrong, obviously, losing weight if you have fertility issues, particularly with polycystic ovarian syndrome or something like that, we know that's associated with improved fertility and better pregnancies and better pregnancy outcomes. And I think losing weight is perhaps the thrust of a lot of those sort of comments. But I'm all for people losing weight and being more active in order to optimize their fertility. But by making claims like less caffeine or eating certain supplements or checking your preconceptual iron or things like that, these are just nonsensical claims. Yeah, when you read it, it sounds good if you don't know anything about biology or medicine. But even then, one study she cites, the one for iron, is a 2019 study that concluded there was no effect on fertility. So she even makes claims when the study she cites is negative and doesn't support the claim. Yeah. Yeah. Articles like this, I think, are just pandering to a certain type of patient, but they're certainly not promoting science. For example, if I were to recommend maca as a supplement to aid fertility, then I would want a trial which randomized women to maca versus placebo and controlled for other confounders. And then I would want that trial to show that there was a statistically significant increase in conception rates or live birth rates. And I would want that trial to be replicated and, you know, based on, on, on quality methodologies and have sufficient numbers to answer the question. Now, of course, no such trial for maca exists. But even a cursory review of the literature, go to PubMed and do this for yourself, you, you should have been able to know better. There's an article in the 2017 Journal of Ethnopharmacology that concludes, quote, to date, the health claims of maca cannot be fully supported from a scientific standpoint and more research is needed. It appears that the indigenous local knowledge about the health benefits of maca has been dragged out of context to fit the demands of a growing market for herbal remedies, end quote. And that's about what you find for all the claims that she's made, with a couple of exceptions. Weight loss and activity being those couple of exceptions, and particularly for people with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So just not helpful. And I think it also gives people false hope. It has them try and waste money on things that aren't beneficial. And it's sad to me. Okay. Unfortunately, this is what our patients will find when they go to Google. Is there, do you think, any more legitimate source of recommendations for optimizing natural fertility that we could turn our patients to? You try really hard with these segues, I'll tell you. (laughs) Yes, I have an article called Optimizing Natural Fertility, which is a committee opinion from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And I'll put a link to that, of course, on the website. How convenient. Let's go through it and summarize what they concluded in their literature review. Yeah, let's tag team this, I think. There's several sections, so we can take one topic at a time. All right. The first topic in their article deals with fertility and aging. They note that 80% of couples will achieve pregnancy within six months of trying, and most of those are within the first three months. So there is a sort of a natural, I guess, diminishing returns in expected fertility the longer you've been trying and not getting pregnant. And they also say that fertility is decreased by age 40 to about half the rate that is seen in the late 20s and early 30s, which that age is actually the peak time of natural fertility on average. And of course, pregnancy 
versus live birth are not exactly the same thing. There are people that have no problem getting pregnant, but then they have recurrent miscarriages. There's also an age-related decline in live birth due to the increased risks of aneuploidy and miscarriage. And live birth without assistance becomes much more rare after age 41 or so. A lot of our patients really make a lot out of the age cutoff 35, but that is not some line where pregnancy suddenly becomes rare and dangerous after you hit 35. That Really, it's just the historic age at which we used to do Down syndrome screening in the 70s and 80s, and we talked about that in a prior episode. But the real fertility starts to decline naturally after about age 39, if you plot it out on a graph. And yeah, that you know that YouTuber Adam Ruins Everything? Yeah. He actually has a great little video on the age 35 thing. I'll have to maybe link that or just... I'll have if to you watch like, it. I don't think if you I've like his it. style. Yeah. yeah, I do like his style. Yeah, and of course, that just just to clarify for everyone, infertility, as we define it, is failure to achieve a successful pregnancy after twelve months of regular unprotected intercourse. But sometimes earlier evaluation for infertility or for treatment is still appropriate if there's an obvious problem, like the periods are irregular. Or there's something else in the history like multiple ectopic pregnancies or risk factors for tubal blockage, maybe. And if the woman's older than 35, it is appropriate to evaluate earlier than 12 months simply because she's already starting off with less good years left to pursue treatment. All right. Next, I talk about the fertile window. Now, the fertile window is defined as the six days prior to an ending in ovulation, or I guess really the five days prior to the day of ovulation plus the day of ovulation, those six days. Peak fecundability, and fecundability is your chance of getting pregnant in a given cycle, in a given month. Peak fecundability occurs with sex or artificial insemination that happens within two days before ovulation. In fact, the day before ovulation in natural intercourse is ideal because the chance of conception declines dramatically even by the day of ovulation. This information is helpful for explaining to people when they should time their intercourse. And it can also be combined with home ovulation detection kits or some monitoring of their cycles. These kits, home kits, will detect the surge of luteinizing hormone in the urine the day prior to ovulation. I explained to my patients that sex the day before is the best day for achieving conception, followed by two days before, followed by three days before, etc. I found a lot of couples actually over the years who are not having much success because they were having sex on the day of ovulation. They get the kits and they say, oh, I'm ovulating tomorrow. And they think they should have sex on the day of ovulation. They thought that's what they should do. And you explain to them that the day before or two days before is better. And then they get pregnant. So explaining the fertile window to folks, I think, is important explanation. Yeah, that's a really simple fix for a lot of cases. The next topic the ASRM talks about in this committee opinion is how often people should have sex. We've talked about this a little bit, I think, in a prior episode. I was wrong. It's something that we probably have better data on now than we used to, so opinions have changed slightly. So the myth has been that too frequent ejaculations could lead to too low of a sperm count to conceive, but this is not the case for men who have a normal sperm count to begin with. So daily ejaculation for men with normal sperm counts is not a problem in terms of fertility. 
But on the other hand, going too long without ejaculation could be a problem. So going longer than five days. And some, I know that some labs that do sperm analyses or even collect sperm for IUI, I know a lot of them will actually instruct the patient to abstain for five days before providing their sperm. And going that long will act, will increase the numbers on the sperm count, but it will not necessarily increase the quality. Whereas ejaculating as frequently as every two days will still give optimal counts. Maybe the numbers will be lower, but the counts will be sufficient. And even ejaculating every day is not going to significantly diminish them to the point where you might as well not do it at all. And of course, again, that's in men with normal parameters who don't have some process that's harming their fertility. But even in men with oligospermia, daily ejaculation is better than trying to save it up over many days. And this is, this is, they've actually studied this. They've studied pregnancy rates related to how many days the man was abstinent before providing semen for, for IUI. And even though the numbers of the sperm were higher when the men abstained for longer, so f- around five days or more, the pregnancy rates were the same. They weren't any better than when the men didn't wait quite as long. And I think their cutoff was two days or less. So it appears that you're not hurting anything by having daily intercourse during the fertile window. Although that doesn't necessarily mean that you're helping anything either. Because there's also one study that showed pregnancy rates were similar with whether intercourse was daily or every other day, and even every third day during the fertile window. But if people only had intercourse one time, that then the pregnancy rates were the lowest. So good advice is probably to have intercourse more than once every day if possible, maybe every other day, maybe even every third day, whatever is kind of the most feasible and least stressful from a standpoint of pressure of having to have a set schedule or demanding more frequent intercourse than maybe what they normally do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We don't want people to feel like they have to do certain things and create that sort of pressure environment. So not being a stickler for how often they have sex and just creating a low pressure, like have sex every day or two. It's okay. When you, it's not crucially important that they do it, then don't encourage it. People do have uh, some relational issues when they get super stressed about not getting pregnant. Okay, then the next question is, how do we know exactly when she's going to ovulate her so we know when that fertility window is? Now, women frequently or commonly even use the calendar method, or now, of course, everybody has an app on their phone, which is really just the calendar method electronically. Or some women will use cervical mucus monitoring or ovulation detection kits like the LH detection kits, or maybe even basal body temperature tracking to try to learn when their fertile window is. So the calendar method is based upon the assumption that the luteal phase is fixed at 14 days for women. It's not, it's, it's, that's true for 95% of women. But that means though, if your cycle length is 28 days, then just subtract 14 from 28 and you should ovulate on day 14. If it's 30 days, then you subtract 14 from 30 and you should ovulate on day 16. And then remember that the day of ovulation plus the five days before is your fertile window. All these phone apps and stuff, they just rely on that principle and they track you over a few months and basically just determine what your average cycle length is and then subtract 14 for you. 
many of the apps don't really know anything about the specific patient. Since they're just doing that math, they don't have any input about when you're really ovulating. They're just assuming that you have a 14-day luteal period that you may not even be ovulating. You could have regular menses and not even be ovulating. So the apps are, and the calendar method in general just aren't super great. But even though it may not have the exact day, if you're off a day or two, when you ovulate, the app or the calendar is off by a couple of days, but you're having sex, as you just said, through the fertile window, then it probably doesn't really matter, right? The truth is that the calendar method isn't great. There was a study of 949 women who compared what the app or the calendar told them they were going to, when they were going to ovulate. They compared that to what actual LH testing told them. And it was only accurate 21% of the time in predicting the actual day of ovulation. The problem is women don't have in real life perfectly consistent cycles or ovulatory cycles or even perfectly consistent luteal phases. But again, if you're off just a day or two, but you're having sex through the window, it probably doesn't make a difference in the world for the average woman. Now, the home ovulation detection kits, these commonly monitor for the presence of LH above a certain threshold in the urine. Some of the newer ones also will detect estrone glucuronide levels. And these are the ones that they'll tell you that you have high fertility and also peak fertility. They'll make a distinction between that. And they use the estrone glucuronide to do that typically. Some of them also just use different levels of LH. Now, these tests are pretty good. The pitfalls are only that ovulation, again, doesn't necessarily occur the next day. That's what we expect. But it does usually occur within the next day or two in reality. So it could be off by a day as well. But once again, if you're having sex through the fertile window... It shouldn't matter if we have the exact right day. They do give false positives in about 7% of cycles, but obviously that's much better than the calendar method, which was only right 21% of the time. False negatives or unclear test results are also possible, but it's hard to find a good estimate of how common this is. But nonetheless, randomized trials do show that women who use these LH tests, they do have a shorter time to get pregnant. So just knowing the accurate timing of the fertile window clearly does help women get pregnant sooner, and the LH sticks in these tests are a well-established method for doing this. Now, older methods that women have done forever include things like checking the quality of cervical mucus. When the mucus is slippery and clear, that should be when the chance of conception is at its highest, but that's certainly not a prerequisite for pregnancy. Women get pregnant despite the quality of their mucus. The amount of mucus produced reaches a peak about two or three days before ovulation, the volume of it. So that's probably a consequence of rising estrogen levels. Studies have shown that when intercourse occurred on the day of peak mucus slipperiness and volume, then pregnancy rates were the highest and they were lower on the days before or after that peak. In other words, you're identifying the day or two before ovulation with that method and we already know that's the best time. So this method can be used, but many women are just uncomfortable with it. And even many women who are comfortable with it, they're not necessarily great at telling the consistency and the quantity and all that. They're not exactly in tune with it. And so that's what this makes it harder for a lot of folks. But if you're recommending it to a woman or she's inquired, you would just tell her to check her mucus daily and learn about it. And when it becomes very slippery and clear and when it's at its most volume, that's probably her peak day for timing intercourse anyway. Women who do use this correctly actually do have higher rates of conception than women who just use the calendar. And it looks like it's probably as good as LH monitoring for women who are able to do it. Daily basal body temps, they can also be helpful to confirm that you actually have ovulated. And they can augment the calendar method to help you understand that your dates are correct. But of course, they don't give you a predictive method of when you're going to ovulate and therefore when to have sex. So it's I don't see that commonly used that much anymore. Now, The question is, should we be telling everybody who comes in to use these methods or just maybe people who are struggling or having some difficulty in conceiving? 
The issue, again, is just added stress. Couples shouldn't be stressing over when to have sex or feeling pressure to have sex on a schedule or things like that. But if a woman wants to use these methods to become aware of when she ovulates, and that's maybe coupled with the low-stress advice of just have sex every day or two in your fertile window and things like that, then they can conceive quicker with these methods. And it can sometimes also just add confirmation of whether or not she's ovulating, because maybe she's not and she needs help there. I'm glad you brought up the whole ovulation tracking. I've used them before to the LH tests and I have had issues with false positives and I think also false negatives. And I guess somehow like my Facebook figures this out because it shows me all these ads of all they these. listen to you. Yes, they're spying on me. But I see all these ads of new products that claim to be way more precise than LH tests. And of course, they're expensive. So I have not bought any of these, but they are kind of interesting to look into. I'm, I am a little intrigued and some of them will still be something that it's a a test strip that checks urine every day and it'll check multiple other things. I think estrogen is another one you already mentioned, but also progesterone. And then all these things together are supposed to help create a more complete picture of when ovulation occurs. And then there's this other device that's kind of like a little Kegel egg that that the woman puts inside her vagina every night and somehow it analyzes the cervical mucus and then gives the prediction on the fertile window based on that. And of course, I have no idea how accurate or validated any of these new things are. The Kegel egg is interesting because it also, that's not the brand name, by the way. I'm just calling it a kegel egg. It's an egg-shaped device. And and it also doubly markets itself as a pelvic floor muscle trainer. So that could probably appeal to certain people. And I guess the whole idea of checking mucus becomes a little more simplified if someone can just stick in a little device that does it for you. So that might be good for the people that are not so comfortable with it or not so not so accurate with describing it. And finally, the other thing I've been seeing is a couple of studies out there and a ton of forums out there on resting heart rate instead of basal body temperature tracking. And I think this has come up because so many people already have Fitz- Fitbits or smartwatches that are already checking their resting heart rate. And the theory there is that progesterone raises the resting heart rate. I think just at the same as it does for the basal body temperature. So based on that, there is actually a smart watch type device on the market that's being sold as a fertility tracker because it checks the heart rate throughout the cycle. And overall, my feeling is that these kinds of fancy fertility tracking systems are still only good for patients that are fertile because they might help them pinpoint their fertile windows maybe a little bit more easily than the methods that we already discussed, but I'm not sure how much more easily, like how much advantage these things actually add for $150 or $300, whatever the prices are. But if someone truly has infertility and they're not having success with LH tracking or cervical mucus, they're going to need probably some prescription fertility drugs or procedures like IVF or IUI or something. So going out and buying these devices first is not going to help them overcome their infertility. 
So my feeling is people shouldn't be spending money on that if, if they actually need to get fertility treatments. And then just the resting heart rate thing, sure, that's convenient for someone who already has a Fitbit or some other type of smartwatch, but I wouldn't say that's a reason that fertility tracking alone is a reason to go out and buy one because, of course, it's not a well-established connection at all. And there's so many confounders in heart rate and temperature, probably. And it's just like temperature. It's more of a reactive thing, like ovulation happens and then the heart rate might increase. So it doesn't help predict anything. And of course, it does not help at all with the anxiety of waiting and waiting to see if the pregnancy test is going to be positive or not. Yeah, the thing that upsets me about a lot of those products or like that website you talked about earlier with the 16 things and all that is that they're really sort of exploitive of people who are struggling. As you said, people who are fertile probably don't need help getting pregnant. And if you're just wanting to know when you ovulate, it's really simple to figure out. You can buy LH detection kits on Amazon for well under a dollar a strip. And you can buy several months worth for $20, but you can also buy them for several dollars a strip. And you can, there's a lot of upmarketing and a lot of things here. But yes, for the person who's actually infertile, who's not ovulating or who has tried, certainly tried a year and not gotten pregnant or six months over age 35 and not gotten pregnant, they're completely wasting their money, I think, on these sorts of products. But the internet is there to prey on them and sell them these products and they'll waste a lot of money and then end up going to fertility specialists perhaps anyway. So yeah, it's I don't like the exploitation that, that some of these things have. It's not that hard to figure out when you're ovulating. And if you're not ovulating, see your doctor. So I talked about one of these fertility tracking systems before. It's the one that checks your progesterone level after ovulation. So that's helpful to confirm that you've ovulated if Maybe your LH strips were inaccurate for you or something like that in the past. But this particular system goes a bit further and tries to predict, at least they say in their ads, it tries to predict egg quality based on high, how high the progesterone gets. And it's operating on the assumption of a luteal phase defect or on the idea that the higher the progesterone after ovulation, somehow the better the egg quality, this sort of thing, which is the thought that there's something wrong with the egg, then it won't release, it won't stimulate the corpus luteum to make the proper amount of progesterone by some mechanism that we don't have a scientific explanation for, I guess. So it may not even give the egg a chance to implant if your progesterone's low. That's their idea. And you'll have withdrawal bleeding or something like that. But the American Society of Reproductive Medicine has a wonderful and comprehensive article on this topic. And basically they conclude it's a huge reach to say that luteal phase defect is a true phenomenon let alone that treating it with progesterone would have any benefit. That's because when they check progesterone levels in people with infertility and people with shorter cycles, those levels overlap hugely with women who have normal cycles and fertility. They do say that if someone has undergone a fertility treatment, it's appropriate to supplement progesterone in the luteal phase through early pregnancy, but that there's no evidence that someone with a natural ovulation will have a higher chance of a live birth if they're given progesterone, regardless of what their levels are. So remember, when you're going when you're undergoing an artificial cycle with IVF or something like that, we do give the hormones back. And we'll talk about that when we talk about fertility later on, but that's not the same in a natural cycle. But these companies, they'll take a feature like this and then they'll have dramatic testimonials of how their users finally got pregnant, etc. And as soon as they uh, they started using this product, their life changed and they'll name drop and quote some PhD that probably owns the company with a nice splashy website. 
But again, look for the randomized controlled trials and you won't find any. So I don't like the exploitation of these sorts of products and the little white lies. These little white lies about egg quality and those sorts of things are also common among reproductive endocrinologists. And we'll talk more about this when we do our next episode about fertility treatments, the levels of progesterone and things like that, that a lot of people just misunderstand and abuse. Yeah, I like that ASRM committee opinion on the luteal phase defect. And that only came out last year in 2021. So they are they are a little bit standoffish, <laughs> I think, on the whole thing. But they do allow that it could be a true phenomenon. But if it is, it's a clinical diagnosis based on a luteal phase that is less than nine to 11 days. Yeah. I, but I think this is kind of like we talked about with stress dose steroids, where the idea of a luteal phase defect is so rampant in the reproductive endocrinology yeah. community that they're not going to just come out and say that it's total nonsense. But the scientific literature hasn't supported the concept of a luteal phase defect to my reading in about 20 years. But it's so persistent and so many sort of treatments and explanations have been built upon this idea. It's also the case, remember, that 95% of women have a 14-day luteal phase but 5%, 2.5% have a shorter than 14-day luteal phase, including a 12 or 13. So if you did see someone with a 9 to 11-day luteal phase, yeah, I can understand what they're saying. Like, that's interesting. Whether that's the luteal phase defect or is just some other issue, maybe we don't have the right name for it. But I don't know that I've ever seen anybody with a 9 to 11-day luteal phase. Just to overshare a little bit, I've occasionally I've had like a 7-day luteal phase. So I have done my own Google Google searching on this topic. But again, I think that if anyone has a short luteal phase and they're having trouble getting pregnant, then they should go to a doctor and get, you know, fertility drugs rather than telling them, give me progesterone yeah. af after my next natural ovulation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which may just cause an ectopic pregnancy or other issues. Yeah. So, right. The treatment is not to go start progesterone after you've had sex, even if such a thing existed. And what I would say about a theoretical seven-day luteal phase is that probably ovulation didn't really occur. At point, we may have just false positive signals of ovulation. This is why it's, it is a controversial topic because we don't always know when people really ovulate. We don't have a definitive test other than midluteal progesterones. And if you have a seven-day phase, like, what is that even, right? So anyway, we're going to talk about infertility coming up soon, fertility treatments. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about sex. I think there's probably a lot of myths around sex, too, for people trying to conceive, at least a lot of sort of folk tales. For example, a lot of women and a lot of websites recommend something like lying down for 15 or 30 minutes after you have sex. I guess so the sperm has a time to travel. But there's no scientific evidence that makes any difference in the world. Sperm actually makes it from the cervix to the fallopian tubes within about 15 minutes of ejaculation. And quickly, they enter into the peritoneal cavity after that. They don't just stay bunched up in the fallopian tube. They've done studies with little markers, and this happens as quickly as within two minutes after vaginal ejaculation. They also tend to go to the side in which ovulation occurred preferentially, which is just fascinating why that happens, if not even exclusively. And the amount of sperm transported does seem to be augmented by higher levels of oxytocin. It also doesn't seem to matter which position is used as long as sperm ends up near the cervix somehow. So there's not like one position that gets the sperm to the cervix better than another. And there's also no evidence that female orgasm enhances fertility. Or again, as I said, that 
any position will have any other effect like related to the gender of the offspring. That's something people ask a lot about. I guess there's some theory about male and female sperm travel at different rates or some nonsense, but of course none of that's true. Now, some lubricants might affect at least laboratory observed sperm motility. So in fact, water-based lubricants in the lab can be seen to inhibit sperm motility by at least 60%. Mineral oil, canola oil, they don't have any known effects negatively on semen parameters in the lab, and neither do the hydroxyethylsalus-based lubricants. That's the substance used in the products Pre-Seed and Fertile Ease lubricants that people spend a lot of money buying. And that's why you'll see recommendations. I know REIs will tell women to get Fertile Ease or Pre-Seed or things like that. Certainly websites will. But, <laughs> again, as we discussed with stress dose steroids, the theory that the in, the in vitro observation that sperm parameters are affected by these water-based lubricants and things adversely doesn't actually equal anything in the real patient. These effects are usually seen with 60 minutes of observation in a lab. And so in actual human intercourse, it doesn't seem to have an impact which lubricant you use. Studies have failed to show that any type of lubricant you use has any negative impact on actually conceiving, probably because the sperm transits so quickly. And those other laboratory-based studies are based on the 60-minute thing. So in fact, use whatever you want, and you could probably save your patients a lot of money by not recommending expensive pre-seed and fertilize type lubricants. If they're even using lubricants, I also see people use pre-seed because they think it will enhance fertility. And it was never, they never claimed it would enhance fertility, only that it might not diminish fertility based compared to some of these other lubricants. But in fact, in real life, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I think that advice is commonly incorrectly given, even from specialists and and general OBGYNs. But Of course, if that was true, then if someone wanted to prevent pregnancy, we'd be telling them, oh, go buy Astroglide and just make sure you stand up right away. But, but you know, that's important because I think probably a lot of teenage girls think that's a thing, right? I got up and stood up and I'm not going to get pregnant. Yeah, not true. Okay, let's move on to the diet and lifestyle section of this ASRM natural fertility document, which has maybe some overlap with that Healthline article from before. Yeah, I'll start with the diet stuff. We know, of course, that very thin women and obese women both have some difficulties in conceiving compared to normal weight women. But the article reviewed which dietary advice actually seems to matter. And just like in pregnancy, we know that high mercury intake is not a good idea. High mercury levels have been associated with infertility. But again, this is really patients who eat large ocean fish like king mackerel or shark on a very regular basis. This isn't applied to the vast majority of patients. It doesn't mean that women should skip their occasional tuna sandwich when trying to conceive, for example. And actually, some fish intake is generally considered to be healthy because of the types of omega fats in fish. So in general, we don't need to tell women to avoid fish. Of course, women trying to conceive should take folic acid to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. The Nurses Health Study 2 was a large study that was a source for, honestly, a lot of the claims in that Medline article. Because in that study, they compared some different dietary habits, and they looked at women who had more monosaturated fats rather than trans fats, vegetable rather than animal protein sources, low glycemic carbohydrates rather than high glycemic carbohydrates, high dairy fats, multivitamin use, and then iron from plants and supplements rather than from meat. And they concluded that women with that large combination of diet had were associated with a lower risk of infertility than women who didn't have that combination. The problem, though, with that trial is that it was not a randomized intervention. It was simply an observation that women with those 
reported dietary characteristics have better, seemingly better ovulation patterns than women who had other dietary characteristics. What the study really found was that normal body weight women are more likely to ovulate than obese women. And as you might imagine, normal body weight women tend to have diets more like the one I just described than obese women do. So as an intervention or a recommendation to patients, there just isn't any evidence that recommending any one of those specific dietary changes or any combination of them will actually increase their fertility rates. In fact, those dietary recommendations have been the subject of randomized trials in women undergoing advanced reproductive technologies. And they were found to not be associated with higher rates of pregnancy in women who should most benefit from them. They weren't associated with increasing chances of ovulation or pregnancy or anything like that. So if anything, we have data that shows that they're not a successful strategy. There's also lots of little studies that have looked at things like the Mediterranean diet or the Dutch diet. And some of these little studies have found higher rates of pregnancy and ongoing pregnancies and live births in patients undergoing in vitro. All of those studies, though, were very small trials, single center, a few dozen people. And it's hard to make any recommendations from this kind of poor quality data. And they do review the literature for a lot of micro and macronutrients, different multivitamins, folate, omega-3s, full-fat dairy, whole grains, vegetables, fish, soy isoflavin use, trans fatty acids, meat, carbohydrates, glycemic loads, things like that. They looked at a lot of those things. These have been frequently studied in, in usually retrospective cohort type studies, and they all have very inconsistent findings. None have good high quality evidence. And the ASRM basically concludes that better studies and RCTs are necessary, and that really none of that dietary advice probably makes a difference. As an aside, just talking about dietary studies, this is a field in, in, in scientific literature that has one of the lowest replication rates. It's hard to look at two large population cohorts of people retrospectively and decide that the single difference between the two of them with whatever health outcome you're looking at was the fact that one group reported that they ate more trans fats over their lifetime and the other group reported that they ate more cis fats over their lifetime. So these sorts of studies have profound recall bias issues and many uncontrolled variables. Just as we discussed in that last episode, there may be genetic predilections towards certain behaviors like consumption of caffeine. And that predilection may be more important than the behavior itself. So a lot of these studies simply conclude that healthy people eat healthy food. But that's a different thing than saying that telling a person to eat a certain diet will make them healthy. And that's why good science is based upon interventional control trials so that we can say that if you eat a certain substance, then your health will improve. And I will say one natural response to what I just said might be, okay, but you saw a group of healthy people eating a healthy diet. So aren't they healthy because they eat a healthy diet? But the problem with that is, is that we have a lot of just cultural and societal claims of what's healthy and people who tend to exercise and watch their weight and take care of themselves tend to do whatever society tells them is healthy. And so if you're just looking out there, you'll see that healthy people eat healthy diets. Healthy diet defined as whatever society at the moment says is healthy. And today it's eating eggs. 20 years ago, it was not eating eggs, things like that. So you do have to have interventional trials. Yeah. And they conclude in quote, in general, robust evidence is lacking that dietary and lifestyle interventions improve natural fertility. So it's a lot like those vitamin D studies that show that unhealthy people have low levels of vitamin D, probably because they don't go outside much, but that giving them vitamin D doesn't make them healthier. So a lot of these are not clearly causative things, but are instead surrogate markers of health status. And that caffeine genetic polymorphism study that we discussed in the last 
episode is potentially a good insight into how that might work. All right, next topic that they talk about is smoking. They conclude that smoking does have a substantial adverse effect on fertility. Women who smoke were significantly more likely to be infertile compared to women who don't smoke with an odds ratio of 1.6. And menopause also seems to occur up to four years earlier among smokers. And that could also be associated with a shorter window of time in their life for women to be able to get pregnant. And smoking, of course, is also associated with increased risks of miscarriage and adverse pregnancy outcomes. So even when they become pregnant, the live birth rate may be affected. It doesn't seem to matter as much for the men, but there are some data that sperm parameters are altered in men who smoke as well. And so as we were just saying, Is this really the smoking or is this the predilection for smoking? I think in this case, it's it's probably safe to say that regardless of what your predilection is, maybe don't smoke. There's yeah, there's just so many other known health benefits of don't smoke. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that Healthline article didn't include quitting smoking (laughs) as something that would improve the number one best thing. And they had talked about the alcohol too in that caffeine study, and the ASRM article also brings up alcohol. And they say there's actually really no good evidence either way that some studies actually say that maybe alcohol enhances fertility. I could make a joke about that. Yeah, I, yeah, you probably don't need to. But yeah, so overall, there, there doesn't seem to be any negative impact of moderate alcohol use on fertility. But of course, they recommend against heavy alcohol use while trying to become pregnant. And that's probably more to do with preventing fetal alcohol syndrome than to do with with increasing the chance of conception. And alcoholism in men may be associated with male factor infertility, maybe due to the lower testosterone levels or even difficulty maintaining erections. And also just in alcoholism in women might be associated with dyspareunia or decreased libido. So... Yeah, alcoholism, we already know it's a bad thing, but apparently no problems with sparing moderate intake. And now to the caffeine. The ASRM thankfully brings this up too, and they conclude that moderate caffeine consumption before and during pregnancy has no apparent adverse effects on fertility or pregnancy outcomes, and also no effect on semen parameters. So you can hand me my coffee. We're several hundred miles away from each other right now. Just sounds like a bunch of excuses. (laughs) You already have your coffee. (laughs) Yeah. So they do suggest that incredibly high levels of caffeine consumption may be associated with decreased fertility. They define that as more than 500 milligrams a day. But just like in pregnancy, when you see someone drinking that much caffeine each day, that's usually not the only issue going on for them. So even then, it's not clear if telling someone who drinks that much caffeine to drink less is going to be the thing that enhances their fertility. Do you want to do cannabis and other recreational drugs? You mean, do I want to present that part of the ASRM paper? Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay. What do you think I meant? Nothing. Never mind. But I'll let you do that. Okay. Cannabis. So actually, infertility is apparently increased by as much as 70% in women who use cannabis. 
And men who smoke cannabis have a 29% lower sperm count compared to men who don't. And there appears to be a dose-dependent relationship between the amount of cannabis smoked and the lower the sperm count. And there's a scientific understanding for why that happens in terms of sperm counts. But how much of that actually translates into decreased fertility, though, is a different question. But there's certainly no evidence that it helps. And of course, the American College of Joanne's recommends against smoking cannabis due to neurodevelopmental issues with the fetus. And, of course, recommends against other recreational drugs while trying to conceive or become pregnant. All right. Lastly, we get to the environmental risks. And, of course, there's a lot of epidemiologic literature that's being published as we speak about the effects of various pollutants and other environmental toxins on fecundity and pregnancy rates and pregnancy outcomes. And we've talked before a little bit about some endocrine disruptors like phthalates, bisphenol A, triclosan, and we see those a lot on different cosmetic products, for example, that this is phthalate-free. But overall, there's no evidence that these things affect fertility or how long it takes to get pregnant. There has been some evidence linking female exposure to polychlorinated biphenyls to the time it takes for them to get pregnant, but these have been banned since 1979, so I think we're okay there. And then there's some weaker evidence that has linked polybrominated biphenyl ethers and some polyfluoroalkyl substances with decreased fertility. So the first one, the polybrominated ethers, were also banned in the 70s. But the second one, the fluoroalkyl substances, are still around in, in things that I think they were taken out much more recently. So they're still around, but they're not being made in new products either. But you might see them in older things like nonstick pans. If you have a non, if you bought a nonstick pan in the last several years, you probably don't have much to worry about as far as we know. And I would venture to guess that if you were exposed to nonstick pans like decades ago as a child, you probably don't have any lasting fertility impairment from that. If you if it even had those substances, don't buy nonstick pans at yard sales or antique stores. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially if they're all flaky. And there's also no association observed between organochlorine pesticides and infertility. But there is some concern about air pollution. And this is based on the observation that people who live closer to high air pollution areas do have lower fertility rates. But again, that Association is not necessarily causation. People who live close to major roadways tend to have higher rates of infertility as well. And there is data that shows that women with higher nitrogen dioxide levels may have decreased fecundability and higher risk of miscarriage compared to women with lower levels. And nitrogen dioxide is released when fossil fuels are burned. So if you live close to a roadway, you probably have higher nitrogen dioxide levels than if you live further away from one due to tailpipe emissions. Yeah. And obviously, if you live in a big polluting city with lots of cars and factories that burn carbon fossil fuels, then those emissions of nitrogen dioxide will be higher as well. So yeah. So that's the evidence-based fertility advice from the ASRM. 
Yeah. And to summarize, like if you have a patient sitting in front of you, I think we should educate them about when they're likely to ovulate and when their fertile window is and how they can monitor for ovulation with detection kits or various other methods. We should recommend, of course, that they have sex every day or two during that fertile window, low pressure. They should take folic acid, of course. There's no evidence that they should make specific diet or other micro or macronutrient changes. It They should have a normal body weight and be working on normal body weight and exercise, of course. It doesn't matter what sexual position they use. And if they want to go use the bathroom right after sex and clean up, that's okay. They shouldn't have used alcohol or recreational drugs or marijuana when they're trying to get pregnant. And I guess they could avoid living in very polluted places. Yeah, and it doesn't matter which lubricant you use. And caffeine in moderation is a good thing. I'm getting you another coffee mug for your birthday. Awesome. And the other thing we learned is don't believe everything you read on the internet, even if it has a check mark next to it with the word evidence-based. Correct. Yes. Be especially leery of those. Yes. So so we've covered, we haven't even gotten to actual fertility treatments yet. And that I think is a very fascinating topic and it's not cut and dry at all. And there is definitely going to be a lot to talk about. So we're going to save fertility treatments like ovulation induction and all of that kind of stuff for another episode. So we'll wrap this one up today. And thinking about OBGYN website, we'll have links to a lot of the stuff we talked about, and then we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks. Thank you.